Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Apollo 11 Beyond the Moon. I'm Brian Stelter, CNN's chief media correspondent, and today we continue to give you a sneak peek behind the scenes of the award-winning CNN original film, Apollo 11. The film uses archival footage to provide an up-close view of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon like it's never been seen before. And the worldwide television premiere of the film will be this summer only on CNN. Let's start this conversation by listening to Neil Armstrong's iconic words as he took the first steps onto the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That, of course, is one of the most famous audio clips in human history. Words that every American knows. Words that echo all around the world. And Armstrong, of course, one of the best-known individuals in human history. One of three white men who made up the Apollo 11 mission. It's hard to watch the film and not immediately notice the sea of white men that filled NASA's mission control. That's all the more reason why one woman, Joanne Morgan, caught our attention. Born in Huntsville, Alabama, as the oldest of four children, Joanne Morgan was the first ever female engineer at Cape Canaveral and the only woman in launch control during the Apollo 11 mission. You know, over the years, over the decades, what many have forgotten to acknowledge is the incredible female presence at NASA as engineers, human computers, and scientists made the emissions and and made the entire American space race successful. In recent years, there has been more recognition of this, uh, thanks to the book and the movie Hidden Figures. And in a few minutes, we will speak with the author of the book. But first, let's welcome Joanne Morgan here, NASA's first female engineer at Cape Canaveral. Joanne, thanks so much for talking with me. You're most welcome, Brian. There is an unforgettable scene in the Apollo 11 film where we see you uh, surrounded uh, by all of your colleagues, uh, all all your male colleagues uh, in, in launch control. Take us inside the room for those days. What was it like day to day working at NASA in your role? Well, it was a very intense time. Um, we had four launches that year, 1969. And I had been there since 1958 as a college student, uh, so a long time of knowing the plans and and preparing for it. And our hard launch was uh, Apollo 8 when we first circled the moon. But inside the firing room, uh, it was my first opportunity to be there at liftoff. I was always excused a few hours before launch because they didn't typically have women in there at liftoff. Uh, You're locked in the launch control center. And uh, my director brought me in before Apollo 11, and he said, Joanne, you're going to be in there for the uh, T-Zero time, the liftoff. 
and and I it was a great honor to me because I hadn't been able to do that before. I'd done the hard part, which was propellant loading, and uh, that was a, a just an exciting time for me to get to be part of the liftoff phase of the countdown. I've read that the decision to uh, to have you there to break up the boys' club and have a woman in the room, that decision went all the way to the director of NASA? Director of the Kennedy Space Center, Dr. Kurt Debus, yes. Wow. And uh, my information systems director, Carl Sindler, uh, presented the idea, and uh, Dr. Debus did approve it. And they're still living a, a man, his name's Pete Menderman. Uh, he, he recently sent me a, an email, and he said, you have to know that Carl Sindler fought for you to be in Launch Control Center Center at liftoff. Mm. And uh, I have to say his fighting for me to be there um, was a signal honor, but also it said to all of those men, she's one of us. She's part of the team, and she gets to be here and enjoy this phase of uh, the countdown and the launch. And I was there through the translunar injection uh, phase, so the first five critical steps of the journey to the moon, mm. which there were 13 critical steps, and uh, and those first five I was part of, so very exciting for me, and literally, I think, made my career in NASA. I mean, I went on to achieve a lot in, in a career and became a senior executive, mm -hmm. and I, I felt like the fact that Carl Sindler fought for me to be there was a, a pivotal moment in my career and my life. And you were 28 years old at the time. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what it's like uh, to be in your 20s and experience, up close and personal, one of the most important accomplishments in mankind history. Yeah, it was it was quite exciting. And the row behind me, astronauts Deke Slayton and Alan Shepard, after they went out to the uh, or escorted the the crew, Neil Armstrong and uh, Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins, they escorted them out to Launch Control Center, and then they got out and walked over and came into the firing room, and they stayed there. Um, after launch, and so just being, and, and of course in other tests and other missions prior to that, sometimes they would be in and out. Uh, Wally Shira and other historic astronauts would be in and out of launch control. Mm. So I was used to to seeing them, meeting with them, talking with them, but um, that was a pretty exciting time too because Alan Shepard, our first person to actually fly into space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was it was just a doubly exciting time for me. Moving up the ranks at NASA, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you started there in 1958. Uh, now it's 1969. You're, you're in the room at launch control for Apollo 11. Did you come across a, a lot of resistance from men who didn't want women to be entering these fields? Uh, was there was there sexual harassment? Well, in the in the early days, uh, mid '60s, I I did encounter some resistance to my working in the control room. Um, the first time I went in, it was over on Apollo One. When I went in and sat down at my console, which was the very first time I I did this new job I was in as an instrumentation controller, and. Um, uh, a man came over, and he was the test supervisor, and he said, we don't have women working in here. 
and uh, there was no ladies' restroom. You had to walk to another building. And so I, I really was taken aback. He actually hit me on the back. He said, we don't, it was like, I'm knocking you out of your seat, lady. Mm. <laughs> so it was, it was a little comical scene, but I, I immediately called my director, Carl Sindler, uh, and I said, he, he's telling me that they don't allow women. In. And Carl said, plug in your headset and go to work. I want the test results by 4.30 today. So you have a job to do. You just sit down and do your job. And I'm sure that he made phone calls. And later on in the afternoon, um, Rocco Patron, who headed up the 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 uh, program, the Apollo program there, was a real key player in making things happen. He Rocco came over and patted me gently on the shoulder, and he said, Joanne, you're always welcome here. Don't worry about it if somebody bothers you. Having that kind of, you know, power figure anoint me, so to speak, um, welcome me into launch control. Uh, it did happen another time that a test supervisor told me, oh, in a different blockhouse, we don't have women, but I just got to where I was fearless. I ignored it. I sat down and did what I'd been sent there to do, my job. And how aware were you while doing your job that you were helping bend the country in a more equal direction? Totally unaware. Ah. <laughs> I was did not have a clue because I was so focused on work. That kind of work, uh, being in the space business, it's the precision-oriented kind of thing, and you you want everything perfect, and you're so focused and highly motivated to make it happen perfectly just like it's supposed to. So, you know, unaware of anything else much going on in the country. I was very, very focused on my work there in the late 60s. What led you to want to become an engineer in the first place? Well, I always loved science and math. My favorite toy in fourth grade was my chemistry set. My dad had taught chemistry and physics in high school, and my parents always encouraged uh, exploration and scientific, you know, experimentation at, in in our house. And I was an avid reader of books. So I, uh, in high school, I excelled in math and science and was lucky living in Titusville, Florida, that I got to see space launches. And I saw Explorer 1 launched. And up until that launch, I really had not thought about being an engineer. I just liked some of those subjects that were underlying uh, needs for engineers. Mm. But after Explorer 1 was launched, that was our country's first satellite, and the discovery of the Van Allen belt, it, I was very attracted to that concept of new knowledge. And, and a like an awareness came over me, this is going to change the world I live in, and I want to be part of it. And I went down to the post office in Titusville, Florida, and on one side of the door there was the FBI Most Wanted photos, and on the other side was a, a little bulletin board that said uh, government jobs. And the Army had an advertisement for a college student, so I got it and filled it out and applied the best thing about that ad, it said student. It didn't say boy or girl. So I did not have a clue that I couldn't do it. I mean, uh, it just was absolutely something I thought, oh, my gosh, all this new knowledge is going to come from this space space exploration. And, I, you know, I, that was what really attracted me to think this is something I could make a career out of. And up until then, I thought maybe I would be uh, – 
piano teacher or something like that. So uh-huh. <laughs> it turned me in a totally different direction, observing the new knowledge coming from Explorer One and what that meant. What you just said really sticks out to me. This is going to change the world I live in, and I want to be a part of it. Oh, absolutely. There, there must be versions of that today. There must be 17-year-olds out there today thinking about, I don't know what it is. It might, be, might involve space. It might involve going artificial intelligence. It might involve going to Mars, and, and they want to be a part of it. And it'll be easier now for, for, for women uh, than it was for you 50 years ago, thanks in part to people like you. Well, you just have to be fearless and go for it. So tell us more about the day that you're inside launch control. You you, you commented that the hard part was already over, the, the propulsion uh, loading. <laughs> yes, yes, because I, I got there maybe three hours before liftoff. And so the, we didn't really have any serious problems. It was a very quiet uh, terminal countdown. And the astronauts came out and they were uh, checked in and and uh, loaded up, and off we went, liftoff. So, and then the Earth uh, did shake. Well, liftoff was exciting for me because uh, it takes a while for the shock wave to hit the building, and um, I, I couldn't stand up. We're, we're very disciplined in the space business. You don't just stop and stand up and be a looky-loo looking at launch. You have work to do, and you have to listen. I had to listen to 21 channels of information plus looking at some displays, and I was responsible for making sure that big, giant overhead displays were what the uh, test conductors and test supervisors wanted there for the the team to be able to see. And so, you know, I, I, I could feel the launch first before I could actually see much of it. Mm-hmm. And I did get a little peep out uh, between the louvers on the window to see it, but I felt it. I had my elbow on my chair, and I could feel from bone conduction the floor shaking. My console was shaking a little. I could feel launch. It was a, it was really a wonderful sensation. Wow. And now all we can do 50 years later is, is watch the movie version and feel it through the television screen, through the movie screen. But I, I, it, did, it did make me almost feel like I was there watching Apollo 11, the film. What did you see when you watched the film and, and you saw your face standing out in that in that sea of men in the launch control what memories did it bring back for you oh the the first thing is there was a scene where they had a close up of me and it wasn't in it was in a scheduling meeting and i vividly remember that cameraman normally in a scheduling meeting we would not have a camera in there and um, they very much controlled the cameras came in just a little bit before launch into the firing room and and they weren't supposed to do close-ups of anybody. Well, this cameraman in that meeting, he got right up in my face, and boy, I rolled my eyes at him. I was so aggravated that he was up in my face. Mm. And uh, so I vividly remember that. But then the iconic scene of showing launch control, um, firing room one, which was conducting the actual launch, uh, I'm down in the middle of a row, and I... I'm one of the few people in some of the photographs they show that that aren't standing up. Now those other guys, they many of them had been there for four launches at liftoff, but I, it was my first launch, and yeah. I was trained to 
keep your seat. You don't stand up and jump up and down and cheer or anything like that. You got to stay focused on your work. We had four launches that year, so we had to get uh, damage assessments. Things had to be repaired for the next launch, and plus, my husband wanted to take me on a vacation, so I was making sure that I was getting all my work done so I could get off from work and have a holiday. And so, <laughs> I was I was uh, not jumping up and down. So there's some pictures, and I'm the only one of maybe three people seated, and everybody else is standing up. But later I found out that was because uh, Nixon was in there giving a speech. And you took the boat down to Longboat Key. You started your vacation. And that's where you watched the moon landing. What, what do you remember I, from that night? I, I did. Yeah, we had been out fishing and, and we had a, a great day. My husband grabbed a bottle of champagne and we watched it on television with the rest of the world in the middle of the night for us in Florida. And it was just so exciting. And that, and that's maybe the first time that the historical impact started to dawn on me, because after Neil stepped on the moon and made his statement, Larry looked at me and he said, honey, you're going to be in the history books. You know, and I had never thought about that. <laughs> oh. So my husband recognized it before I, it dawned on me even. You were in it. You were busy working. Yeah, I, exactly. I was too busy getting my work done. And, and really, that's a secret in a, in a tough business like that. You have to stay focused on achieving the goals of your, your job and your assignment. And what does it mean to you 50 years later that there is more recognition these days of the role of women at NASA, thanks in part to hidden figures? Well, I think it's wonderful because I think women especially are needed in engineering I think they bring a level of ethical decision-making. They bring a level of creativity and also maybe a little more focus on things that are important from the human perspective. Uh, it's not as much a game for women engineers uh, as I see with the behavior of some men engineers. So I, one of the things I'm working on now is getting out to universities and trying to encourage those engineering schools that have low populations of women students to look you got to recruit some more women 60 percent of the people in college today are women but they're not 60 percent of of the engineering schools and there are some schools that are very low some are great i mean and doing wonderful at 50 50 but many of them and i find if i spent some time at a university and talked to the dean talked to the president talk to their foundation and endow a scholarship, we could get some more women going into engineering. I think that's quite important for our future. Joanne, thank you so much for being here and, and thank you for the incredible work uh, that you did on the missions. NASA was lucky to have you. Well, thank you. After our quick break here, uh, we will be talking with the author of Hidden Figures, Margot Lee Shutterly, is coming up uh, in just a moment. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And we are back now talking about all things Apollo 11 and the importance of the human computers. Joining me now is the author of the best-selling book, Hidden Figures, Margot Lee Shetterly. Her book was adapted into the award-winning film. Both the book and the film showcase the critical roles of women behind the scenes at NASA, especially at the Langley Research Center for the Mercury and the Apollo missions. Margo, I know the idea for this book came to you almost a decade ago at this point, right? It was about 2010 when you started thinking about exploring this subject? That's right. Um, And it really came out of um, my own personal story. My father, who is now retired, uh, worked at NASA Langley in Hampton, Virginia as a research scientist. As a consequence, I grew up there. And I had the very, very good fortune to know women like Christine Darden and Katherine Johnson um, and Mary Jackson. As a little girl, I got to see these role models who worked with my father at NASA, which, you know, every kid knew, well, the smart people work at NASA. <laughs> um, and it was, um, but it really wasn't until I started on working on this book many decades later as an adult that I got a sense for the true um, scope and depth of the work that these women did. And it, it's meant the world to me to be so connected to people who were both very unassuming and um, extremely talented and and doing this work for our country. And the people you introduce us to uh, in the pages of the book and in the film adaptation, they're described as human computers. Uh, Help us understand what that term means. Sure, Brian. Well, today we think of a computer as a piece of desktop software, something you plug it into the wall, you know, it turns on, it's electronic, and it does all of our mathematical heavy lifting for us, (laughs) in addition to a lot of other things. But the fact is, for most of human history, a computer was a job title. It was the name or the title of a person whose job it was to compute, do computations, do mathematics in a variety of different fields. And for most of the 20th century, those people were women. So, so much of the 20th century and, and the great advances that we've had in technology, um, in defense, in transportation, those things have come about as a consequence of women or human computers sitting in rooms doing math. What an amazing, critical job. So, so tell us about what you included in the book and the differences with the film. So I 
when I started working on this book, um, it was really obvious to me from the beginning that in order to get the whole story, I would have to start in World War II, as so many things happen in our country. Uh, so many changes happened during World War II, and, and this is very similar. Um, so I started with World War II, and that was really the generation of women who are portrayed in the movie. Um, Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn, who started either during the war or just after the war, and who were on the job in 1960, 61, 62, those early 60s, which is, those are the events that are portrayed in the movie. Yeah. Um, Christine, Dr. Darden, she came along after those women, um, 1967, um, you know, in the middle of the, uh, you know, we were still going at full steam ahead to land on the moon. So that is the reason why she is not in the movie. Uh, the producers made the decision to focus on that time period. So the, the time leading up to it, World War II, the, you know, the, the early part of the Cold War, Korean War, and then uh, the aftermath of, uh, of Apollo is in my book, but it is not portrayed in the film. So let me uh, step back in time here uh, again, Margot. Let's go back to the Apollo period that, that you recount in, in your book. You, of course, describe what it means for these women to be working in a predominantly male, predominantly white uh, work environment. How pervasive was discrimination how prevalent were these problems that you documented? Well, I think there are really two things um, or a couple of different things that changed over time. When the women first began working at NASA, Langley, in the, um, in the late mid-30s was when white women first started working there. World War II was really what opened the door to black women. Um, there was legal discrimination. There were segregated uh, workspaces. There were segregated bathrooms, segregated cafeterias. This was in the state of Virginia, which, uh, which was then a state where Jim Crow racial segregation laws applied. And so the women really had to work in a situation where there was that kind of legalized segregation. Now, all of the women really had to, uh, to work through expectations and, and uh, let's say, customs and practices related to gender discrimination. So, for example, even when women did the same work as their male counterparts, they could be paid less or given less of an opportunity, less of a promotion. Mm. And, um, you know, one of the things that's really exciting about this book and was exciting to me about the research was to see how those women circumvented those uh, that institutional idea that perhaps women were not as as good at engineering as, as they could be at, at math, you know, which are two different job categories, or that the women were satisfied just doing their jobs, that somehow they didn't have the same ambitions as did their male counterparts. So um, it, was a, it was a really, uh, it was as much an interesting look at the evolution of race and gender in the workplace as it was in a look at the development of, of airplanes and of our space program. You were also helping rewrite the narrative, rewrite the history that many of us have been taught for decades, that, that it was mostly, uh, if not all, white men in white shirts and black skinny ties uh, that put men on the moon. Why did that narrative... Uh, take hold for so long before you and others have helped correct it? Well, you know, those are the pictures that we saw. You, you, we, we always saw the pictures of mission control. Those were the, you know, the white guys and skinny ties and uh, the white shirts. Um, and, and really, even more than that, when we think of the space program, we think of the astronauts. You know, and the fact is that 
um, hundreds of thousands of people and their brain power, their hard work, many, many years of work were required to put um, the astronauts on the moon. We have a tendency to look at the, you know, the famous people and, and assume that they got there all on their own when the reality is for, for any great achievement, there are many, many people involved in making it happen. And, and it just so happens that uh, if you're talking about women, if you're talking about um, underrepresented groups, you know, we have the idea of what a scientist or engineer looks like, and they fall outside of those those boundaries. But one of the things that I think is very exciting about the state of history right now is that we are looking for those people. And I think people mm. often assume that when they look at a great event or they look at successful people, that they should also look for what they might not know or assume that there's something missing and include those people who haven't been included in the narrative in the past into the future. What do you think we should be continuing to do to highlight the women who contributed to this project and to NASA as a whole? Well, I think one of the ways we honor their legacy is by looking at the people today who are doing those things. Um, one of the things that's been really wonderful for me doing the touring for, for Hidden Figures, the book and the movie, is I've met so many young people who are excited about engineering. They're excited about math. They're excited about NASA. They're excited about the future of space travel. And uh, many of those people are women and young girls. And so, um, and, you know, they get to look to uh, not just Dr. Darden or the, the other women of Hidden Figures, but they get to look to a number of women who are in the field making strides today. They get to look to female astronauts, black female astronauts. You know, these are things that would have been all but unimaginable when the first women went to work at NASA. So I, I really think the best way to honor their legacy is to shine a spotlight on the people who are doing the work today. Margo, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. And again, we're looking forward to the worldwide television premiere of Apollo 11 on CNN this summer. Thanks so much for joining us, and be sure to tune in for our next episode. We're going to take you inside the media moment that was the moon landing. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.